sticks, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love, the government hug the government love, the government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University. I'm joined by Ken Katkin, a professor at law at Northern Kentucky University, or Chase Law School at Northern Kentucky University. <laughs> Ken, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I hope you are too. Yeah, it's great to be doing the uh, midweek show with you. And this week, Ken, we are actually doing an Ask the Politics Guys we have kind of a backlog of questions from listeners, uh, some for you, some for me, some for just anybody on the politics, guys. And so, listeners, we're going to be taking on your questions for this Wednesday show. Uh, and so I think, Ken, we'll just start jumping right into the questions. Okay. Now, the first one, this one, this one is actually kind of for me, but can I, may, help me out here. Maybe you can, can, can help me convince Matt that I'm right, or maybe you're going to agree with Matt that I'm crazy. Uh, but Matt wrote the following uh, on our Facebook group book page. He said, in response to Mike and Trey's discussion a few weeks ago about the Democratic presidential candidate field, he says, quote, I'm going to have to go back in the archives and figure out how Trey can be a conservative libertarian and a Cory Booker fan simultaneously. Cory Booker scares the hell out of me. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, well, Matt, I'm going to try to answer this question and then Ken, maybe you, you can try to poke holes in me. I don't know. Uh, here's what I want to say. Take the word fan carefully in this sense, right? So I, I, generally speaking, I don't want Democrats to win. Okay. So let's just put that out there. I mean, I, I have worked and done things for the Republican Party. Uh, that's who I am. And, and that's what I've been in general. Now, it's also no uh, um, shock to any of the listeners on this show that I was deeply uh, bothered, troubled, worried, and have been off put with the Republican Party as it's moved into its Trump era. And I, I don't always feel like I have a place in the Republican Party in the era of Trump. Uh, and so that has made me forced to look at the alternative candidates who could actually be the not Trump candidate. And for uh, when you're looking at it from that perspective, I think that Cory Booker fits a lot of the things that can make me happy uh, in that kind of conservative libertarian bent. Uh, for example, you don't have to look very far to see that I think he has one of the better and more open immigration policies. He wants to have a pathway for undocumented immigrants. He wants to end uh, family separation, and he wants to stop the culture of thinking of crossing the border as being uh, a criminal act. And those are things very near and dear to my heart. He wants to do things like increase the earned income tax credit, which I think is a good move. Uh, if you've seen some of the things we've done on Facebook, his positions on not wanting to have pipelines and drilling on land that's been set aside to be pristine, uh, like the Smoky Na uh, Mountains National Park, is a great move. You can see my show earlier with Michael. Uh, again, as a libertarian-leaning uh, conservative, his justice for LGBTQ individuals appeals to me uh, very deeply. And so on a number of these issues, I have liked Booker. And he's someone who has been able to get things done and to do them by crossing the aisle. And I think that's an important one for those of us who are considering voting for somebody who's not going to be from our party of preference. Now, 
that doesn't mean that I love everything about Cory Booker. So just a few of the things that I don't like. I really think that his positions and policies on trade, like what he likes to call, quote, we're only going to have trade deals that protect families, end quote. Well, that's Trump 2.0. I really can't understand and I still don't understand how how so many of the Democratic candidates continue to basically want the trade barriers of Trump. It's a failure. It's been a failure. It's an empirical failure. Also, things like the Green New Deal, like Ken and I talked about on the weekend show, I see as being deeply problematic. I don't think those are the right ways to be trying to solve climate change. So I'm happy that we're talking about climate change, but I'm not particularly thrilled with his particular implementation of those kinds of policies. But when I look out at the at the field, I think that Cory Booker could be a good candidate for somebody like me on those kinds of issues. So Ken, am I nuts? Am I drunk? Tell me. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I agree with you about Cory Booker. I like him. Um, I like a lot of the Democratic candidates, as you know, including Cory Booker. But actually, m- many of the things that um, you just said you like about Booker, I-, I would also think those would apply to several of the other Democratic candidates as well. Not to all of them, but um, uh, it seemed to me like he's not so unique in that context as compared with the other um, center-left candidates, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, for example, this throws out the Bernie Sanders. I mean, for me, Bernie Sanders is basically the left's Trump. I mean, he has very similar positions, similar kinds of takes on that. Um, Elizabeth Warren, she is an an incredibly intelligent individual. I would love to have a debate with her about things. Uh, But I deeply disagree about uh, a lot of her economic, domestic economic policies, which is what kind of puts her out of uh, out of reach for me on that front. In a way, I don't think that Cora Booker quite goes that far. Right, right. I agree. I, I agree that I didn't expect you to like Sanders or, or Warren, but oh. <laughs> I, I, I think. Uh, but I think that uh, um, I would have thought that all the positive things you said about Booker, you could have said, uh, say, about Klobuchar, or, or you could have said, you know, even perhaps about uh, Biden. Um, you know, so that that. Um, the, the, the kinds of things you're saying you liked about Booker, I thought applied to maybe more than one Democrat. Definitely. And as a matter of fact, you know, I think kind of number two on that list would be a Biden for me uh, as again, because he's being, I have those positions. He's stuck in a more difficult position, of course, because he is a guy with a really, really long track record. And that's not something that right now is particularly positive for democratic, for democratic yeah. candidates. Um, but that's a, that's a separate question, but Yeah. Uh, so, Matt, I hope that I've begun to answer your question. And if you still think I'm nuts, uh, feel free to reach out on Facebook. And I'd love to talk to you about it uh, some more uh, in those kinds of uh, in that kind of context. So why don't we turn to another question, Ken, that maybe applies to both of us a little bit. Uh, hey. Scott writes the following. He says, hey, guys, I have been listening to your show for a short time and I've really enjoyed what I have heard. On one hand, the show has challenged many of my beliefs. And on the other hand, the show has validated other beliefs. Here's the question, though. I've been thinking about our political structure and wanted to get an expert's uh, opinion. My question is this. Are there any repercussions for not following through on campaign promises, other, of course, than not being elected? Would jail time or making someone repay the money that they have received while in office be too outlandish? What are the other good accountability options, other than not being reelected. And since I started on that first one, Ken, why don't you start with Scott's question? Right. Well, there's, um, yeah, there's not a lot of um, direct uh, methods of, of legal control uh, other than uh, elections. If, if we're talking about 
people who work in the executive branch, um, where really the president and the vice president are the only ones elected, the rest are appointed anyhow, um, there's impeachment. Uh, impeachment doesn't even apply in the legislative branch. Um, the legislative branch has uh, expulsion, um, but it wouldn't be the voters of, a, of who voted for someone um, that could get them expelled. It would be um, the other members of the House or the other members of the Senate. Um, and, and it very, almost never happens. So um, in terms of uh, some kind of criminal sanctions, which the caller asked about, that would be essentially impossible. There's actually a, a provision in Article 1, Section 6 of the U.S. Constitution called the Speech or Debate Clause that actually gives um, all the members of Congress complete immunity for um, any civil or criminal liability anywhere um, for any of the work that they do as members of, of Congress. So um, I think that the notion of a, a criminal statute um, or, or a civil fine uh, against elected officials would be would be tough. Um, one thing that was tried once uh, with only dealt with one specific kind of promise, which was term limits promises. Um, there were some states that had passed laws that said uh, if a candidate ever promised that they would only serve for, for a fixed number of terms and then voluntarily retire and not keep running, um, that if they broke that promise, it would be noted on the ballot the next time they ran, that this, this candidate whose name is on the ballot broke a promise not to run for a third term. And so Arkansas had actually passed a law like that, and the Supreme Court struck that down uh, in 1986. Um, so I think it is pretty hard to use methods other than ordinary uh, electoral political accountability to really um, uh, hold the uh, uh, members of Congress uh, to their promises. Yeah, and the thing you have to remember, Scott, is that additionally, who passes the law, right? It's going to be either a state legislature or Congress. So it's unlikely that they would want to create a law that would penalize them in, uh, in their activity in that sense. And the other bit here we're thinking about, uh, and you can you can jump in on this if you wish, Ken, is that oftentimes when I have individuals ask me kind of in a professional capacity, well, why do, why do congresspersons do fill in the blank? Or why do we let them, you know, fill in the blank? And in this case, you know, talking about not fulfilling their campaign promises. And I like to turn that question around and rather say, in a Democratic or in a Republican system, the only reason they can do that, as you're even noting in your question, is, is that we reelect them. So the, the question you may want to be asking is, why do voters opt to vote for individuals who don't always follow through on the things that they're saying? So are they really not? Or perhaps maybe they're doing it more often than we think, and we're kind of just highlighting certain ones. So, uh, you know, I like to kind of always turn that question around. I don't know about, about you, Ken, but I always I say, well, why are voters behaving the way they are? Because that's really what determines how any Democratic or Republican uh, legislative uh, branch member is going to behave. Yeah, well, and actually another aspect of that, um, you know, you, you were talking more from, from a you know, real, real world political science, and I'll, I'll talk from kind of formal um, legal, legal logic for a minute. Uh, James Madison, um, in, in his constitutional design for our Constitution, he did not want the members of the U.S. Senate to make promises or to keep promises. So it, it was okay for members in the U.S. House to do that. But the, the concept of the bicameral legislature is that only one body of the Congress um, should actually be trying to do what they told the people they would do. Um, and the other body of the Congress should be trying to actually deliberate and possibly be open 
to changing their minds and trying to figure out what's the right thing so that when the Senate was supposed to be the world's greatest deliberative body, there'd be no point in going in and having a debate and having a deliberation if every senator came in already knowing how they're supposed to vote. You know, I have to vote the way my constituents want me to vote. So this debate is just for show. Um, that's not what Madison wanted at all. He wanted the, the senators to be open-minded and not to be committed to any particular um, positions. And then you would only get legislation um, if the members of the House wanted it, and they would presumably want what their constituents want because they're being held to this very tight electoral leash where they've got to go back every two years to their district and get reelected. But also if the Senate wanted it, and in, in Madison's design, not only did the senators get the long six-year terms, but he didn't contemplate that they'd even ever stand for election. The, the the original design had uh, that they were only elected by the state legislators, not by the not by the voters. Um, and we didn't have the voters electing senators until we got the 17th Amendment in the 20th century. Yeah. And, and the last thing I'll kind of put here, because it kind of ties into Madison's view and the, the political scientist empirical view in me, which is remember that if somebody is elected on a, on a even on a series of promises, he or she then has to determine on which of those people wanted him or her to be elected, right? So it could be the case that it becomes apparent to me after being elected that my constituency, if I'm if I'm just trying to do exactly what my constituency want, which is only one notion of representation, there's other notions, right? You could be either their delegate or you could be uh, kind of their thinking agent. Um, yeah, the, the trustee of their of the trustee of their of their. Um good of, of, of what's in their interests, even if they don't know what's in their interests. Exactly. And so, but even if you're taking that delegate model as, as to being the, the highest, you still have to say, well, I guess maybe people vote, voted for me because of campaign promise one and two, not because of campaign promise three and four. And so I ought therefore not even to attempt to follow through three and four. So I think this gets a lot more complicated than you might think, Scott. Um, and I think that's both some of the pragmatic, uh, the theoretic, and some of the empirical reasons why you don't see that in Democratic or Republican systems. Anything you'd like to add, Ken, or... Yeah, just and also that this I'll, I really said it already, but the six year term here for the Senate, the, the very point is that they're not supposed to be very closely accountable to the electorate. That's that's a long term. And that's the reason it's so long. Exactly. Well, let's turn to another question. This one is from Tammy. Uh, and Tammy says, I would love to hear an approach on power struck politics where Democrats and Republicans struggle for power is ruining democracy and nothing is getting settled. The ones that stand out of the most are the ones we don't support the most, but we're forced to always vote for the lesser evil. There is no compromise anymore, no creative alternatives. Trust me, the majority of Americans feel this way. I'm so tired about the left and the right wings getting the attention from media. Why? Where are all the good old-fashioned politicians? Ken, are you hiding them in your kitchen? <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting. There, there, there are, um, I suppose, uh, some, you know, some places in the country where we essentially only have one functioning party, and then there's other places in the country where we have very robustly competitive two-party systems. And I suppose you might expect to see, um, you know, the ones that never have to worry about re-election because they're, they're in the party that's really entrenched. You know, you might expect that they'd be a little bit more um, uh, 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 nonpartisan. They'd tone it down a little bit, but I don't know if you even see that in the real world. So I don't, I don't have a, I don't have a theory actually for, for why, why we don't see the, the kind of problem solving. What, what's your theory on that? 
I, I actually think this goes back. There is a political theorist uh, named David Mayhew, and he does kind of the he's the groundbreaking work on Congress. So I'm going to kind of approach this from a congressional point of view. And the answer, uh, Tammy, is is that Democrats and Republicans, in large part, uh, they are going to take these kinds of things. He calls them position taking. They take these position-taking positions uh, not because they think this is going to be the way they're actually going to get business done all the time, uh, but rather because if they don't, that's how we we will vote for them. Or if they don't take those kinds of positions, we'll end up penalizing them at the ballot box. So my suggestion here is going to be that the reason these kinds of individuals uh, win is because they are really effective uh, at, uh, at their position-taking. And now I think your your second part of your question is, is, well, why aren't we more compromise oriented? Right. So why won't they come away from those position takes? And and Ken, I know there's a lot of, uh, of a lot of work on this and it's kind of inconclusive in some ways about this good old fashioned politics. And I, my suggestion would be is there has always been a lot of uh, diametric position taking. Uh, in the United States. And I think that oftentimes we always think of our own era as being the worst merely because it's the one that's the most salient to us. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, ours isn't the worst, obviously. There was a civil war in the 1860s, so there, there, were, times, <laughs> <laughs> there were times when it was worse. But uh, I, I, yeah, I think, um, you know, maybe one aspect of that might be how closely divided the Congress is, too, because I think it's easier to get some bipartisanship when one side has a larger majority, um, and then the other side is going to have to play ball with that. If they want to do anything, they're going to have to play ball with that larger majority. Um, whereas I think when it's when it's really closely divided, and uh, then it really focuses both sides a lot on um, kind of distinguish them distinguishing themselves from the other. So that may be part of it. But I I still actually don't know that any of these theories fully explain why you see that same kind of behavior even where there's no serious electoral competition. I mean, most of these theories are based on the idea of electoral competition, but there's a lot of places in the country where there is no electoral competition. So I don't, I don't know why we, we don't see different kind of behavior in those places. Well, even in those locations, you're not going to have cross-partisan, uh, in other words, you're not going to have Democrats uh, fighting Republicans, Republicans fighting Democrats, but you do have to take into account the newcomer, uh, the primary challenger, and so if even in those kinds of locations, if you don't continue to seem to be what Republicans or Democrats want on those positions, you're opening yourself up to a challenger, not from the other side, but rather from an interparty conflict. Yeah, I guess that's probably right. So, yeah. Well, Tammy, I, 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 that's probably not what you were hoping to hear, uh, but I hope that helps you understand it a little bit better. So we've got another question, uh, Ken, and this one comes from Mike, and he says this. He has a cybersecurity question. This past week, the CEO of Twitter had his account hacked, uh, and then he gives uh, an example of what happened uh, from The Verge, a popular electronics website. He moves on and says, in light of such events, any comments on the use of social media as an official government communication mechanism or even to conduct diplomacy? What do you think? How do we trade off desire for government officials to directly communicate via social media versus the security risks inherent in using such social media? What do you think, Ken? 
Yeah, well, I mean, the Twitter actually isn't is not an official form of government communication, and uh, although although President Trump does like to communicate via Twitter, um, that is not uh, an official communication. There have even been some episodes um, where he's announced new policies by Twitter, and his own cabinet has not actually implemented the policies that were announced by Twitter, at least until they were eventually communicated through more official channels, and uh, sometimes they never were, and then the policies never get implemented, but. Um, the the uh, yeah the risk of hacking I'm not sure that's actually any worse on social media than on any other kind of um, te technological platform that's interconnected with the internet so you know even if the government um, was just putting out information to the public through its own public websites rather than through social media those have been hacked before also so I don't I don't know that there's a, a special cybersecurity risk with uh, Twitter or Facebook as compared with any any other um, uh, website but. Uh, well, I think what he's saying, Mike, is I think when he says official, I'm going to give him a, maybe a, a different kind of read. I think he means so we have there's the official White House uh, Twitter uh, feed, right? We yeah. have the official state. And I, I think what he's maybe wondering is, well, what happens if somebody gets a hold of that and says something like, you know, the, the hurricane is is going to hit Tennessee. It's time to panic or <laughs> yeah. or, or whatever. Uh, do you do you think that there is a different risk? between uh, social media and other kinds of communication methods for, for that on, on that level? Yeah, I don't know the answer to that, but I will say I, I remember times when actual official government websites with .gov uh, um, URL addresses um, have been hacked and altered and, and you'd look on them and there'd be, you know, some 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 hijackers taking over the page for a few hours. And that, that has certainly happened on government pages, too. So I don't I don't have an idea about which one is more secure than the other, but it, it seems to me that there's sort of always a cat and mouse game. If you're on the internet and the, if there's hackers out there in the world, even including ones who work for foreign intelligence services and things like that, um, sometimes um, they're going to succeed. So I, I don't know that there's any bulletproof way of being on the internet and 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 maintaining complete security against having uh, the content hijacked for short periods of time. Yeah, I agree. And and so my kind of my answer is the backbone of the internet is set up as such that it doesn't allow for the kind of security that other channels uh, allowed for. But the upside is is that you get the free flow of information um, quickly and anonymously uh, through a non um, a non single channel. In other words, it it can go through peers. But the downside is you're always going to have the, those kinds of risks. And I think that if your question is, well, what should government officials do about this? I think that they're going to turn and do what's happening in the general culture to some extent. Most people have voted, and I don't mean <clears throat> for politicians in this case, but they've voted with their pocketbooks for the ease and the transportation of data across the internet, and they have voted for that ease and for that communicative ability over security and in many cases even privacy and and the, given how many people have done that it will not shock me that that's the same kinds of things that 
government will do because they are going to be a reflection uh, of society as a whole. <clears throat> now, we could have a debate about, well, you know, how much security risks do we have versus how much open communication. But I think really, ultimately, that's kind of a, a, a moot question because it's going to be what we all have already voted with, economically speaking. And on that one, it, it's pretty clear. We would much prefer to be able to talk with people along far away. We'd rather have instant Facebook communication than worry so much about particularly what's happening with our data. I don't mean that necessarily personally or just you, but as an aggregate in the United States. You have anything to add on that, Ken? No, I, I agree with that. So I, I think it's, um, it's you know, I mean, cybersecurity also improves. So there may be points in time when the cybersecurity gets good enough that it can defeat these all these attempts at hacking. But then, of course, the, the attempts at hacking will, you know, try to rise to that challenge also. So, uh, yeah, it seems to me like an endless cycle, really. Agreed. Well, we have another question, a rather long one, but this one comes from Seth. And Seth writes, quote, I have spent a lot of time thinking about the subject of policing in and around discussion of Pew questions about African-American experiences. I think here he's talking, Ken, uh, about the Pew Research Center. Uh, you brought up uh, how much more likely it is for young African-American males to have negative interactions with the police. I agree but I don't think we spend much time considering the politics of the use of police. To my knowledge, there is not a single police agency in the country that does not answer to an elected official. That makes everything they do, from deployments to manning to points of emphasis, an inherently political activity. Further, at this point, I haven't even mentioned prosecutorial discretion and that the prosecutors, the cases they prosecute and how they prosecute them are also inherently political. I think this helps to explain the disproportionate number of African-Americans in custody and the difference in the number of death sentences handed out to African-Americans versus white Americans. I think you can tell a lot about the values of a society based on the ways that it polices itself. I'd be incredibly interested in hearing the politics guy's thoughts on this topic. Do you see policing as a political activity? There's a lot to unpackage there. And so, Ken, you're the lawyer, so I'm going to defer to you first. What do you think? Yeah, I say absolutely yes. I agree with the um, the listener that uh, policing is a political activity. And I think that, um, you know, unfortunately, in most parts of the country, um, you know, the, 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 um, even in, even where you have electorates that might be democratic or liberal leaning electorates, um, you know, crime and safety are an issue that I think the, the American public, um, tends to be more conservative on. And so, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of American voters have tended to, to be more concerned about law and order than to be concerned about civil liberties. And so that is all playing out politically. Now, I will say that, uh, Bill de Blasio in New York City, uh, went very much the opposite direction on that. Mayor de Blasio came in and really, you know, had a lot of conflicts with the police because he directed them to stop doing all racial profiling, to stop doing the um, stop and frisks, and really, you know, had a, a politically progressive impact um, in a major way that required a lot of um, uh, conflict with entrenched ways of doing things um, on policing, and it had a huge impact. Um, I don't see that in a lot of jurisdictions in the country, but I think. Uh, de Blasio um, did provide a model there for what um, other mayors could do or other uh, electorates could demand. 
I agree. And, I, and I'll add kind of to this, Seth, is that we recognize in, on the political science spectrum of the literature here, we have long recognized that what most people uh, politically respond to is not the actual things that are happening to them, but their perception of what is happening to them. And this is nowhere more important than when we're talking about uh, uh, policing or as Ken, as you're putting it, as that kind of law and order issue. You know, the rates of violent crime, of homicides, all of those have actually been falling precipitously uh, for years, but for decades, as a matter of fact, now. Uh, But people's perception of those issues is that they're happening more often. And so as as a result, they vote on the perception, not on what's actually happening to them. As a matter of fact, as you walked around New York City, you know, in the 1980s, uh, late 1970s, you you could have been pretty likely to have a crime. And today it's almost none. I mean, <laughs> even yeah. in the middle of New York City, the likelihood that some violent crime is going to happen to you it, it is so small as that you, you, you probably shouldn't even consider it uh, as being a reason for doing or not doing anything. <clears throat> and so I, I think part of your question about, well, why are they doing it the way they are? is because that has been the perception, and that's the perception that has led to the policies that we look at, which then uh, direct uh, uh, policing. Yeah, I mean, just to add to what you said, Trey, I mean, in the 1980s, as you point out, New York City, which was every bit as Democratic-leaning then as it is now, they voted Rudy Giuliani the mayor, and and they voted him the mayor because people were so concerned about crime, and and so th- there was very much a, a political, um, you know, uh, a, 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 the the public wanted a, a crackdown on crime. They wanted more safety. They perceived the city as being out of control, and so the kind of policing that New York got um, responded to that. And now that crime is way down, I think the electorate in New York you know, maybe is a little more enlightened than in a lot of other places, and started demanding that the police. Uh, dial back some of their some of the um, civil rights violations, some of the racial profiling, things like that. And so now they have de Blasio, they have low crime and they're able to 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 put more brakes on the police. Um, But if there was high crime, certainly the public would be demanding that the police go all out again, as as they were doing in the 80s. And I think kind of to follow up on the second part of your, your question, Seth, and that is this different this, as you call it, this, quote, disproportionate number of African Americans in custody. Uh, I don't think that one is just because of policing activities. I think it's because of the way and what we have criminalized and the way in which we've criminalized it. Uh, Many African-Americans are in custody today uh, because of the drug laws in the United States. And it's not that they are more active in uh, in, in drug use than uh, uh, other eth- ethnicities or white Americans, but rather in the ways in which they are being engaged with police and, and where those kinds of activities are occurring. Uh, and so on that front, I think you're on to something here, but I think it has to do with the things that we've end up, ended up criminalizing have uh, tangentially or purposely, we can get into that in a different show, uh, ended up focusing on African-Americans. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, so so policing, you're saying, reflects the substantive laws that the police are being asked to exactly. enforce. I don't yeah. think it's police officers. I don't think it's police officer bias that's the primary reason that we have African-Americans in custody. I think it's the underlying uh, policies that they have to then engage in the way they have to engage in them. Well, I do think it's both because I think a lot of police were encouraged by their political leadership to actually do racial profiling, 
you know, beyond what the law actually requires. And and so I think you had laws like the drug laws, as you pointed out, that had maybe disproportionate impact on minority communities. But then you also had policing that was falling disproportionately heavy on uh, minority communities by design. And so I think that's why when you get a, a Mayor de Blasio in New York City that says that has to stop, um, that can have a big impact. And I, I wish more mayors would be like that. I, I agree. But I, again, I don't have a lot of hope for that one, Seth, in the sense that, again, I see the electorate as responding not to the actual empirical experiences, but rather to what they uh what they they believe they're experiencing, and, and those are oftentimes uh, uh, different are, are different things uh, quite radically, uh, which is yeah, we could talk about that topic forever. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> so well, Ken, it has been wonderful doing the show with you, and I've had a lot of fun going through all of our uh, listeners' questions. I hope you have too. Oh yeah, it's great. Well, if you're a supporter to the show, um, I'd like you to know that we really appreciate your support. And if you'd like to become a supporter, uh, you get all kinds of benefits. For example, we have a supporters only show each weekend, all kinds of fun things that you can have. If you want to learn more about being a supporter of the politics, guys, you can check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash politics, guys, or you can go to politicsguys.com slash support. If you've got questions or comments or corrections or comments like our listeners and you'd like to be on a future Ask the Politics Guys show, you can just share with us at mail at politicsguys.com or on our Facebook page where we regularly solicit for questions. You can message us or see where we're posting throughout the week at politics, or excuse me, facebook.com slash politics guys page that's facebook.com slash politics guys page we're also on twitter at politics guys subscribing to the show really helps as does sharing the episode word of the mouth really is the best advertising and we'd greatly appreciate it leaving root reviews and ratings on whatever podcast app you use helps immensely the executive producers of the politics guys are bruce johnson wilmer morano andra masker and benji fishman today's show was produced by trey orndorff We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. I hope you'll join us then.